everyone. Uh, my name is Amber Athey, and I'm the chair of the Georgetown University College Republicans. Before I introduce our speaker this evening, I would first like to thank the Claire Lucluge Institute for um, co-sponsoring and supporting this event. Um, without their help, this couldn't be possible. I would also like to thank everyone in attendance tonight. It is great that we are able to come together and have a discussion on what is surely a very contentious topic. While it is recognized that not everyone may share the same views as the speaker, it is expected that everyone in attendance at this event respect the right of the speaker and the organizing student group to share their perspectives and ideas by not causing a disruption to the event's activities. At the conclusion of the event, there will be a question and answer session during which you may ask questions and engage in dialogue. Please be sure to phrase your comments in the form of a question. In the interest of time, we ask that each person be concise and ask only one question. Now, without further ado, I will introduce our keynote speaker for this evening. Dr. Christina Hoff Summers earned her BA at New York University, where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1971 and received her PhD in philosophy at Brandeis University in 1979. She is also a former philosophy professor at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Currently, she serves as the W.H. Brady Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and is the author of the provocative bestseller, Who Stole Feminism, How to Have Betrayed Women, and The War Against Boys. She hosts a weekly video blog called The Factual Feminist, which discusses topics such as the pay gap, sexual assault, and other gender issues. Summer's articles have been published in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, New Republic, Chicago Tribune, and Times Literary Supplement. She has appeared on Nightline, the CBS Evening News, Crossfire, iTime, 2020, Inside Politics, The Daily Show, and Oprah, discussing such issues as the future of feminism and gender bias in schools. In fact, it was Summers who first coined the phrase equity feminism and gender feminism. Tonight, she will be discussing the topic, What's Right and Badly Wrong with Feminism. Everyone, please welcome Dr. Christina Hoffsons. Good evening. I'm happy to be here. I'm still a little traumatized from that uh, game that you played with Utah. It ruined my bracket. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? You were doing so well in the beginning. Uh, which has sent me to campuses throughout the country, and uh, we've had a great time over the years. I'm here tonight to talk about what's sort of the status of <coughs> feminism. A recent poll was commissioned by, by Vox, and they found that about 18% of Americans consider themselves to be feminists. 85% said they believe in equality for women, but somehow the vast majority declined to identify with that label. Now, I'm going to propose tonight a new style of feminism that I hope sort of reestablishes the connection between equality and, and, and feminism, because somehow it's been disconnected in, in the public mind. I call it freedom feminism or equity feminism. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know, feminism is just fine. We don't need your new school, thank you very much. And others may uh, not be great fans of feminism at all, and you're thinking, well, why try to improve something that's so outmoded and annoying? 
I just let it, you know, let it go. It's like trying to improve the avian flu. Just stop. Well, uh, if I do my job today, I'm going to persuade, I hope, nearly everyone in the room that freedom feminism is our best hope. Uh, it's a compromise, but uh, as I hope to show, it is in this compromise where women have made the most progress historically. Uh, so I want to also provide a path away from some of today's gender wars, uh, because I think freedom feminism will lead to a far happier and just a generally more just world. Um, I even think personal life. But before I give you this elixir of life, let me just say a few words about my background. Um, way back in the last century, in the early 90s, I was a feminist academic in good standing. I was invited to feminist conferences. Uh, I was sought after someone to review papers for feminist journals. My philosophy classes at Clark were often cross-listed with women's studies. That all changed rather abruptly around 1994 when I published my book, my first book, Who Stole Feminism? Now, the book was strongly feminist. However, I rejected the idea that American women are an oppressed class. I described feminism as a great American success story, that women were flourishing in so many ways, and it was no longer possible to say who was better off. It was a complicated mix. I didn't say women didn't have problems, but so did men. And, um, to speak of American society as a patriarchy or to call American women second-class citizens seems to me to be uh, such a, well, it seems to me to be absurd. So in the book, uh, I tried to show how feminism was being led up in, in strange directions by eccentrics. And I do mean eccentric. At the time I was writing, I had a colleague that was teaching feminist philosophy at the University of Washington. She, she wrote a textbook which she dedicated to the women in my women's studies ovular in the spring of 91. And I saw that, and I hadn't seen the word ovular before, so I went to look it up. But before I got to the dictionary, it occurred to me that I wouldn't find it. She made it up. She didn't like the word seminar. And if you think about it, its root word is associated with the very essence of male power. So she wanted a feminist, well, don't even think about it. She wanted a feminist alternative. Um, and it was funny, but as I read through her book, I realized she wasn't kidding. Now, uh, it, when, when the book was first published, there were prominent feminists who wrote me fan letters and liked it. Erica Jong, Nadine Strassen, president of the ACLU. But for the most part, I was subjected to a colorful array of epithets for my heresy. I was excommunicated from the religion of feminism. Uh, many feminist leaders remain convinced that American society is a patriarchal, oppressive system, and they did not appreciate my pleas for moderation. Some called me a backlasher, traitor to my gender, anti-woman. I was one anger critic even referred to Margaret Thatcher and Christina Hoff Summers, those two female impersonators. Um, now, just as an aside, I have to tell you, this has not been easy for my parents. Uh, my, they are very liberal. They are so liberal. Uh, they moved from California to Vermont. California was too reactionary. <laughs> um, and my dad used to, uh, it, it, I'm very close, I lost my dad recently, but I'm very close to my parents, and despite their rather extreme politics, but it's, uh, they always remain loyal fans, but it's sometimes difficult, because one, on one occation, uh, Playboy magazine did a little review of my book, 
And my dad, at that time, a gentleman in his 80s, was eager to get a copy. He always wanted to read anything that I wrote. But how, how do you go when you're an 80-year-old, 80-plus, to the local store in, in Vermont and buy a Playboy? He was embarrassed. So he went over the border to the more libertine New Hampshire. And he went to Keene, New Hampshire, and said, uh, and then he felt he had to explain himself to the sales clerk. And he, he has Playboy. He said, I'm only buying it because my daughter's in it. <laughs> <laughs> he just paid and fled. Anyway, uh, it's, it's, let me get back to my topic. I'm, I'm not a backlasher. I promise you, not a, not a traitor, not anti-woman, not a female impersonator. You're not supposed to use that phrase anymore. Someone was called out. Um, but I am a former philosophy professor with a, a respect for logic, rules of evidence, and I hope basic fairness. So I promise you, if I say anything that strikes you as wrong or illogical or just, as the British would say, bloody-minded, give me some good reasons to reconsider, and I promise you I will. So on to freedom feminism. Now, freedom feminism stands for the moral, social, and legal equality of the sexes. It affirms for women what it affirms for everyone. Dignity, equality, opportunity, personal liberty. Now, I developed this doctrine by studying the history of the women's movement. And if you go back to the classical feminism of the 18th and 19th century, one of the things you find is that women move forward because of two distinct streams or paths towards emancipation. Uh, and uh, uh, so the, the first one I, I and other social historians uh, call egalitarian feminism. Now, egalitarian feminism was progressive. Some called it radical. They viewed women as independent agents rather than wives and mothers. It held that men and women were in their essential natures the same, and it sought, sought to liberate women through appeals to abstract principles of social justice, universal rights. It developed out of the European Enlightenment. Now, the second school, sometimes called social feminism or maternal feminism by social historians, this school is sort of a lost continent in the history of uh, women's rights because it, it was more conservative. Uh, it, it, and it was more, the women who made up this movement were largely conventional, family-centered, largely religious. It embraced, rather than rejected, women's role as homemaker, caregiver, provider of domestic tranquility. Uh, but it proved to be radical in changing uh, the role of women in society because of the two schools, social or maternal feminism, was just more popular and politically influential. Unlike its more radical sister, the egalitarians, uh, the egalitarian tradition, it had enormous appeal to large majorities of women. Now, I, I'm not favoring one over the other, and I'm not saying we're going to have either today. Uh, but this is the history. There were these two paths. Now, the person that you, you may have heard of that's associated with the egalitarian tradition, the most famous person in the 18th century, would be Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, she was a rebel and a free thinker. She believed that women were as intelligent as men, as worthy of respect. And as I said, it was, she was driven by the spirit of the European Enlightenment, whose primary principle was the essential dignity and equality of rational beings, and Wollstonecraft had the audacity to say women too are rational. And she was strongly, a strong and heroic proponent of education for women. Now, at the 
the time Wollstonecraft was writing, there was another woman named Hannah Moore, who was a novelist, a poet, a pamphleteer, an activist, an abolitionist. She was waging a very different kind of campaign. So if Wollstonecraft was the founder of egalitarian feminism, Moore is the founder of maternal feminism. Now, like, they were rather alike in the sense that neither married, they were both sort of self-made women who became the intellectual peers of the, the most accomplished men of their age. Uh, and in fact, Hannah Moore was, as one biographer said, she was better known than Mary Wollstonecraft, and her books outsold those of Jane Austen many times over. She was the most famous woman uh, of her age. Now, unlike Wollstonecraft, Hannah Moore believed that the sexes were different in their attitudes, preferences, propensities. But because of this difference, uh, she promoted what was a kind of empowered femininity. She envisioned armies of intelligent, informed, and well-trained women. She called them domestic heroines. Uh, and and she, uh, she promoted philanthropy, the idea of women in hospitals, orphanages, schools. She appealed to women to exert themselves with a patriotism at once firm and feminine for the greater good of all. And women listened. But what happened is when they would leave there, and she, she was preaching to, to both aristocratic women, for middle class women, as well as poor, poor women, uh, to go and, and do these good works. And when women then would find themselves working in orphanage for conservative reasons, they were, this was their, they were domestic heroines. So she, she spoke in a very traditional language but it had very radical consequences for women because they left the private sphere, got into the public sphere, and, uh, and that out of that developed the suffrage movement when women were out in society. Um, so anyway, uh, Hannah Moore and Wollstonecraft, they both played a key role. And, uh, but I repeat, it was more Hannah Moore's family-friendly, religion-friendly, it, 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 uh, made her so effective. So, um, and again, I'm not saying one was better than the other, they complemented each other. And when, as I'm going to try to show, when these two groups get together, women make progress. And everybody makes progress, because typically women will try to bring others along with them. So we saw orphanages and schools and great improvements, the beginning of a the humanitarian movement in, in England. It happened again in the 19th century in the United States in the suffrage movement. We had Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. They promoted women's suffrage <coughs> through appeals to universal rights. But um, they tried to bring the Enlightenment to American women, but to their abiding frustration, women didn't listen. And, and women even organized against, there were, there were groups that organized against their own em emancipation, against the suffrage. They needed help, and along came uh, a woman named Frances Willard, and she was one of the most beloved and respected women of the 19th century. They, she was known as St. Francis of American Womanhood. Um, she brought mainstream women into uh, the suffrage movement. Now, many historians credit her with playing a pivotal role. At the time the movement was languishing, she came along. Now, what did she do? Well, she was president uh, for years of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And uh, she was president until her death. Now, today we think of temperance. How do we think of crusaders like that grim face, gold, carry nation? She was about six feet tall. She had a hatchet and she was tearing the saloons apart.
This was not Frances Willard. Under Frances Willard's leadership, the Women's Christian Temperance Union developed into a powerful and effective philanthropic association that addressed causes like care for the disabled, prison reform, child welfare, as well as suffrage and, and temperance. Now, it was largely a, the, the, the women's, the first wave of feminism was largely a white middle class women's movement, but, but not Frances Willard's movement. She had chapters in this country with immigrant women, African American women, Native American women, 30% of the leaders of her groups were the wives of unskilled and, and workers and skilled workers. Uh, but what she did is she went to them and she said with the vote, she said, you will greatly in, increase your civilizing and humane influence on society. She even rebranded it. She called it the home protection ballot. Now, women were moved by her arguments. Men were disarmed. Uh, and she and her followers began to bring the suffrage movement something it hadn't seen too often, which were electoral victories. And many, many as I said, historians think her conservative approach made all the difference. She persuaded large numbers of women and men that it was a mother's sacred duty to vote. Now, there's a wonderful book called Two Paths to Equality, uh, and Brandeis University scholar Janet zollinger gila tells how American women won the suffrage when the, because uh, when these egalitarians and the more traditional, moderate mainstream women led by Frances Willard, when they worked together. And she said, and I quote, History records defeat every instance when one branch failed to recognize the valid arguments of the other. When the two branches cooperated, success followed. Now history suggests that women fare best when we have the two movements, progressive and conservative, working together. Now, as I said, I see merits in both schools. I agree with Gila that those two working together uh, the one kind of the more radical edge, and then the other bringing mainstream women along. Um, now, neither neither of these will do quite for for, uh, for us. I mean, it's the 21st century. It, it, uh, feminism, when I say it needs a makeover, I am going to borrow from these movements. And a, a few weeks ago, I was speaking at um, uh, University of, at, at UCLA, and someone was live, someone who didn't like me, who came to the essay, was live tweeting it. And later I read these tweets, and he said, Oh, she believes in maternal feminism. She wants to vote. No, I don't. I'm drawing from it. I'm, I believe in both of these. I think we can learn from a more conservative approach to women's emancipation and a more radical. I'm simply pointing out, citing the scholar uh, Janet Zollinger Gila, that, that when the two groups work together, when moderate women, conservative women, and radical women could find common cause, women made progress. So I, I, I think maternal feminism and egalitarian feminism, they, they need a bit of a makeover to suit the new millennium, and that's what I call freedom feminism. Freedom feminism borrows aspects of both the egalitarian and the maternal tradition. Now, freedom feminism shares with the egalitarian, with the egalitarians, an aversion to rigid gender roles. I mean, today, I hope few people believe that women should be forced to conform to a specific set of stereotypes to their sex. On the other hand, no one assumes that even the most free and self-determining women are going to choose en masse you know, to be just like men. Freedom Feminist stands for equality of opportunity. It doesn't insist on 
same result, sameness of result. If I had to reduce its message to a single sentence, it would be that in the pursuit of happiness, men and women tend to choose somewhat different paths. And what I, what I find that was truthful about the, the more, uh, the maternal feminists is that um, gender roles seem to persist even under conditions of radical freedom. If you look at the Pew Research Center, I think every year or every other year they do a poll and they ask parents, you know, what is your ideal arrangement? And over and over again you find that the vast majority of mothers would prefer to work part-time or not at all. Most of them prefer part-time. The not at all is about 20%, part-time is about 60 a very small percentage of women with children want to work full-time. Um, it's about 20%. And this has been confirmed also by research by Catherine Hakim at the London School of Economics. No matter how many times we might want to de you know, deny the insights of Hannah Moore and Frances Willard, they, they seem to remain salient. Is that men and women, even under conditions of radical freedom, don't, aren't really becoming identical. We're not merging into an androgynous uh, mass. It's just not happening. You look today at what, uh, what college majors. I find it extraordinary that after several couple, decades, three decades of feminism, if you look at majors today, what you find is that it's very, very different. Engineering majors, largely men, computer science, uh, extreme uh, male dominance. Do you know that women could, could probably do a lot to close the wage gap if they would just change their majors. Uh, there was a recent study about what you can expect to earn. The highest paying majors, petroleum engineering, 87% male. Naval architecture, 97% male. Metallurgy, 83% male. What are the three worst paying jobs? Early childhood education, 97% female. Social work, 87% and uh, communication disorder sciences, and I guess special ed, 94% female. Now, a few years ago, I came across an article in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that greatly influenced my thinking, it sort of blew my mind. Uh, a group of international researchers in 2008, they compared data on gender and personality across 55 nations. And, and what they found is that throughout the world, women tend to be, they're not talking about everybody, they're talking about averages. They're generalizing from the, 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 how you can generalize about both groups. And they said, on average, women tend to be more nurturing, uh, risk-averse, emotionally expressive. Men tend to be more competitive, risk-taking, and emotionally flat. That sounds so pejorative, obviously stoical. Uh, now, of course, there are exceptions. They were looking at the norms. But the most fascinating finding was this. They found that personality differences between men and women were the largest and most robust, the more prosperous and egalitarian and educated the society. According to the authors, nations that have like long life expectancy, high levels of literacy and education, economic wealth, they had the largest sex differences in personality. And the New York Times, a science columnist, summarized the findings this way, this way. It looks as if personality differences between men and women are smaller in traditional cultures like India or Zimbabwe than in the Netherlands or the United States. A husband and stay-at-home wife in a patriarchal Botswana clan seem to be more alike 
than a working couple in Denmark or France. Why would that be? The authors of the study hypothesized that prosperity and equality bring greater opportunities for self-actualization. So wealth, freedom, opportunities uh, empower women to be who they truly are. In other words, uh, I mean, it's conspicuously the case that gay liberation was a feature of advanced prosperous societies. It may be that such societies also offer more conventionally heterosexual uh, people an opportunity for coming out as what you are, and you can be more stereotypically who you are. And uh, we see that everyone on the LBGQT spectrum has more opportunities in, to embrace gender identities in uh, our society. Now, this research isn't conclusive, but I think it's intriguing and it has great explanatory power. I mean, just think about it. What if gender differentiation is a sign not of oppression, but of well-being and freedom? I'll give you a quick example. People say, oh, you know, computer, there are more computer science women, you know, women in India are studying computer science more than here, or engineering. Well, it's true that in a lot of developing countries or countries that are struggling or with less opportunities, you do find more women studying engineering. But what if it's the case that in the United States, people are, women are just freer to study what they want? Because if you look at who are the art history majors, who's studying uh, literature, and it's mostly women, psychology, mostly women. Women have all but taken over fields that were once dominated by men, veterinary medicine. I don't know what's going on there, but it was all men, and now it's, it's hard to find a man, in, especially in the more elite uh, vet school. Seems where women want to go, they, it seems that we can't. And you can, the best experiment is to look, what do women do under conditions of radical freedom? Now, some critics will say that, well, wait a minute, your view is reactionary because you're not taking into account how masculine and feminine preferences are, are shaped by culture. I remember I had a colleague in feminist philosophy that once she believed in the what she called the sex gender system. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, we're all born bisexual and then through socialization we're transformed into male and female human beings. One destined to command the other to obey. I read that to my husband once and he said, now which one commands and which one? <laughs> uh, well, so anyway, critics will say, we were just socialized to be this way. Um, women who major in social work or education rather than petroleum engineering or metallurgy, or women who want to work part-time when they have children rather than full-time, they're making self-defeating choices which undermine their well-being. Uh, the, the American Association and University Women put it this way. Women's personal choices are fraught with inequities, she's, they said. Uh, and the National Organization of Women talked about powerful stereotypes that steer uh, women and men toward different education, training, and career paths. Well, here's my answer to that. I agree that there are societies where women and men have so little access to education, information, that it, it makes sense to say that they haven't chosen their life path. But American women and European women are among the most educated, informed, self-determining people in human history. 
I mean, isn't it a little patronizing to say that their choices aren't free? I mean, what does it even mean to say that uh, you were forced into your, your role? I mean, I taught philosophy for many years, and I can tell you right now that there, this is basically the question of free will and determinism. There is no resolution in sight. Philosophies have been debating free will for 2,000 years. I mean, how do I know any of you are, made your choices for you? How do we know that a radical feminist or a radical anti-feminist, they weren't just the sum total of all the forces that prevail. We don't, and I think that uh, for the moment we should err on the side of common sense and credit one another with agency. And I, I'm going to give a quick couple of examples. In Sweden, they have, uh, where they go very far in pursuing gender equity, there was even a, uh, the Swedish Left Party Feminist Council had ran a, a candidate, Gudrun Schemensch, who proposed a man tax. It was a special tariff to be levied on men for all the violence and mayhem they, they brought by their sex. The men weren't too happy about that, and they were going to come back with a tax on every, you know, anytime a woman went over a bridge that they built, uh, there would be a charge. Well, Sweden established a school called Egalia. It's a state-sponsored preschool dedicated to the total obliteration of masculinity and femininity, just people. There are no uh, males and females there. They're just friends and buddies. Uh, kids read no Snow White, no Cinderella, none of those stories, but you know, two, two male giraffes, uh, parent and abandoned crocodile. Hey, that was one engaging tale. Uh, they have, uh, and this one excited teacher, you know, she was, she was saying that we've liberated from gender. They're, they're just going to be themselves. So this, she had a different idea of being who you truly are. Um, but in their efforts to free children from the constraint of gender, uh, it turned out that these teachers had to impose a whole new rigid set of standards all their own. They had, for example, they had to get rid of toy cars because the boys afforded them higher status. Free playtime became a nightmare because the kids lacked into gender play. One slate writer did a great story about this school. Every, she said every detail of children's interactions was micromanaged by hand-reading concerned adults. Now, it, it turned out that to liberate these children from gender, you had to police them in ways beyond anything uh, that you could imagine would go on in a, a typical kindergarten. Now, few would deny that a parent should expose a child to a wide range of toys and activities but what the Swedes were doing in their classroom it goes far beyond that. They were requiring it, and there was a, a kind of intolerance for allowing these kids to do what they wanted to do. Anyway, uh, I freedom feminism is that you, you have tolerance for people and where they want to go. That yes, that means tolerance for for kids who are. Uh, their gender, they're not typical, they're not behaving in ways typical for their gender, but then that also you must be tolerant, understanding, accepting, have you know, compassion schools, but the same for kids who embody, the, 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 probably the majority, who embody the, the, the stereotypes of their sex. Uh, so I'm vigilant about this principle of freedom, equality for all, but I'm not, I don't want to impose a kind of rigid regime uh, to get, uh, you know, re-socialized or socially engineered a society. Um, and I'm going to just finish by saying that 
Freedom feminism has a second principle. We'll talk about it more in the discussion, uh, which is uh, I care very much, all my years of studying feminism, it's going to be a principle of any school of feminism that I'm associated with. So we care about, about truth and accuracy and rules of evidence. And not because um, on the side of, of someone said, oh, well, you're, you, you, I've made this series, Factual Feminist, where I'm correcting a lot of feminist myths. And someone said, well, you seem like you're always on the side of men. I'm not on the side of men. I'm on the side of truth. And right now, there's a lot of bad things that happen to men that aren't talked about. And uh, it, it happens to be the case that in the universities especially, there's just a lot of exaggeration. You can read a women's studies textbook, and I've done some reviews of them. Maybe they are changing, but I haven't, I haven't seen that lately. Um, they tend to exaggerate women's vulnerability and to understate the problems of men. I have not seen a counterexample yet. If you have one, give it to me. I'm dying to see it and make friends with the author. It's just, there's just always, always spin, 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 twisting. Uh, we are saturated with feminist misinformation. And I just happen to think compassion is on the, you know, that, that, that truth is on the side of compassion. That falsehood is not going to help anybody. Not in the long term. And how many times have you heard, you know, women are being cheated out of 23 cents. They have to, you know, for the same work, a man is paid a dollar, a woman is paid 76 cents, 77 cents. This pay gap, it's repeated over and over again, but it is so misleading. It doesn't take into account what you studied in college. How many years you were in the workplace? Do you, you know whether or not what's your occupation? What's your job tenure? How dangerous is your job? Are you willing to work weekends? Weird, weird shifts. And, it, and when you factor these relevant variables in, the wage gap narrows to the point of vanishing. And I think it was Warren Farrell on why uh, men earn more. He has a book. Uh, he says about twenty-five things that determine salary. And it's just reckless to report this gap without doing, giving the adjusted wage gap that takes account of the different choices men and women make. Now, I know you're thinking, well, but those choices aren't free. Well, the burden of proof of, uh, is on you to, show, to prove that someone in here who's studying education is not free, and you are studying whatever. I mean, it's just not uh, a very generous thing to do. I think we should credit one another with agency. I also think that women who are at risk for violence and exploitation, they need truth. They need good research, not spin, not hype, not twisted statistics. Um, a couple, one last point is that I think feminism is leaving more and more people behind. I tried to show you that women make progress. Human, humanity makes progress. I do think that women have led a lot of humanitarian movements, but it was very often when you had conservative and radical women making common cause. There are a lot of problems in the world today. If we had a sisterhood that was more diverse, that, hurt, that didn't silence the voices of libertarian women and conservative women or traditionally religious women, if we were part of that women's movement, I think it would be a powerful, awesome force for change. But right now, it's almost as if the movement is getting narrower and narrower, and more and more people are being left out. And now, you have on the campus a kind of outbreak of intolerance for uh, cries for, sometimes cries for censorship, disinviting speakers, uh, and demanding. The most extreme thing that I saw was a conference in um, London of feminist leaders from all the colleges 
And they had a trigger warning that you should not clap because that was causing anxiety, trigger anxiety. They said you should use jazz hands. <laughs> I sort of like that. Anyway, um, I'm just afraid that this is uh, alienating more and more people. And next year, they're going to ask how many people are feminists. <laughs> And, and, and Julia Shulovitz wrote an article in the New York Times. They had a debate on statistics about sexual assault at Yale. And a group of students um, went to a safe room, because they didn't want to hear the debate. And it was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a videotape of frolicking puppies. This is what women's lib has come to. I'm proud of you. I know some of you don't disagree. I know some of you disagree with me, but you came. And that's, you're not, didn't do that. So, um, but no wonder the women's movement is languishing. I mean, that is just bad. It's embarrassing, actually. In conclusion, I think anybody who cares about improving the status of around the, around the world and in the United States, we should be working to create a women's movement that resonates with people, real people. Men and women, lots of them, we need a feminism that respects freedom and truth. A reality-based, liberty-centered, male-female-respecting feminism could greatly help women both in the United States and throughout the world. Freedom feminism, freedom feminism is my humble contribution to that effort. Well, thank you, friends and buddies, for listening. <laughs> the audio hour is now over. And please show your appreciation with jazz hands. <laughs> Thank you. They go off to have children, 
they don't have access to paid family leave, and you talk about once we account for their time in the workforce, once we account for this time in the workforce, it disappears. Well, what's taking place is they're losing time in the workforce because they don't have paid family leave, and then they don't take it in academia
two years maternity leave or something as they do in, in, in some European countries or 18 months, uh, the women sometimes don't go back. And then they go back, you know, and here it's kind of terrible what we do, but it, it's, it, it helps careers that you don't lose at that time. So I just, it's what people understand, there's an odd trade-off there. Uh, but the thing is, yes, I want, I, I am a the kind of feminist, I want your, those who want to work full-time to have the ability to do it. And, uh, but it just, it's not the majority. A lot of women, when they have children, they, 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 they do have a more tenuous relationship with the workplace. I think it's by choice. I think that the women that I know, if you went to them and said, you were socialized to want to stay home with those kids for three years. Um, I think that, I mean, my sister-in-law did that. And she stayed home and went back to teach math at Brooklyn College after raising five kids. And uh, went back. Now, she does earn less, but she thinks she had a wonderful time. She feels grateful that she can do that. And uh, so she did take it. So what I'm, I guess the point here is that if you evaluate well-being, you have to look at a diversity of values. And one of them is money, for sure. But there's also, is the job fulfilling and rewarding? If I went around now with a clipboard, and some of you may be having, may be majoring in things that are not like as good as metallurgy. Not even quite clear what that is. Textbook or, or, or electrical engineering. Um, then uh, I would say, well, you've been socialized to one major in gender studies or something poetry or whatever you're doing. You've been socialized. Do you think so? Is that your opinion of yourself? And, what, and, and why are you socialized and not another person who's doing things according to particular you know, uh, specifications, standard specifications? I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you there's no easy solution, and I would stay away from it. And we, I think we have to credit one another with agency. And you don't, we don't know. We don't know what forces prevailed in someone's life. And I was hoping that intersectional feminism, that it would begin not just women, but it would look at men and women in a complex way and see that there are ways in which gender and sex are harmful in education for boys who are falling so far behind and, and, and not going to college. And, uh, and we look at that. It's across ethnic lines, across cultural lines. Boys are languishing behind girls. Boys are increasing, and our schools, what are they doing? They're more and more intolerant of the antics of little boys. And there's a the little boys, uh, there's a lot of, typically, a lot of rough and tumble play, and uh, the sound effects, and there's no culture known in the anthropological record where the young males don't engage in rough and tumble play just about as much as they can. Not all of them, but the vast majority. Now, girls do it too, but not as much. Not nearly as much. If you watch, go to a playground, or if you have little girls in your life, watch what they do. There's a lot of theatrical, imaginative play. Sharing confidence with a best friend. Turn-taking games. Boys don't do that very often. And, uh, and teachers like, and mothers like the way girls play better than boys. So boys now in our schools with less and less recess, and more and more Ritalin. And these are big issues. And, and it's, it's tragic to see what's happening to working class boys. Uh, who are, and in all ethnic groups, the boys from poor homes or homes where the family didn't go to college, you look at those boys, and then you look at their sisters, who are so much, doing so much better comparatively. So I think we have to look at, at the way in which 
the system is harmful to women and benefits women and harmful to men and benefits men. The last thing I'll say is with jobs, we always talk about who can be a partner in a law firm. Well, that's important, and I want women to have access to that. But why don't women just talk about who's, who's working on oil rigs and who's has the death professions, and men are much more likely to be injured as window washers. I've never seen a woman on a high-rise washing windows, and I don't hear about that from the feminists. But if you want total equality, then you want to, you know, why not start with the working class professions and try to blend? Uh, you'll have a lot of resistance because there are not as, nearly as many women that are willing to do those jobs. And uh, so I just think that uh, we've all been kind of we're in this spell that happens in college. Uh, the colleges are denying what's so obvious, which is that there, there are differences between the sexes that can explain why we are the way we are. And the more difference might be a manifestation of freedom. Yes. Hi there. Um, so talking back on the women that we do know, we've talked a lot about women in boardrooms and women going into professions like being doctors. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the women that I know in my role as a domestic violence advocate in Anacostia. A lot of these women are coming from abusive relationships and don't have the same opportunities that we're talking about here, being able to go out and work in these professional classes. And I would really love to go back and tell them, like, you know, we don't have the existence of a patriarchy and like we have opportunity. But the fact is that I think for a lot of so women who are on the lower socioeconomic stratum, they don't have that. But the reason I'm asking this question is because part of what we do as domestic violence advocates is ask whether they ever have been forced to have sex with someone. It's in one of our little questionnaires. And I know that you um, published an article kind of talking about the center of disease control statistics around sexual violence and asking why don't we just ask women if they've been raped. And I can tell you from my experience, when I ask women, have you been raped, a lot of them think, well, it was my husband, it was my boyfriend, it wasn't a stranger in an alley, so it couldn't be rape. When what they really experienced would fall under the spectrum of sexual violence. So I'm just kind of wondering a little bit more about the methodology behind that response to the center of disease control thing, but also just how your idea of this equality, freedom, feminism takes into account perspective of women who don't like the look like the majority of us here. Okay, well first thing, I'll start with the CDC study. Go back and look at that study, because there's a lot of strange things there. I, I only mentioned a few things. That study asked men how many times we forced in the past year to penetrate someone. And they got a figure over one million uh, projected into the whole population. It was the exact number as, of women who had been raped. Now, they didn't count it as rape. But I don't know what, it, what they meant. I mean, maybe this is going on. And maybe it's some untold horror story. Men be, I don't know. Uh, and people have asked them about it. And they just kind of say, well, yeah. We, you know, they, they have this weird finding. That is a very weird study. Uh, that was a study that, that counted it as sexual violence if you have, has anyone ever, um, uh, did you ever have sex with someone because they told you lies? Now, I would call that uh, bad behavior, immoral, wrong, but to call it violence uh, is, is stretching the meaning of the term. And this worries me that on our campuses we're enlarging the meaning of the term of violence and assault to encompass more and more actions. And they were lowering the standards of guilt. And you have the makings of witch trials, or you know, sort of uh, kangaroo courts. 
and you're already getting a lot of young men suing. And I promise everyone in this room who has an ounce of, 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 of fellow feeling, if you heard what these people go through, it's, these are horrible stories. I know the stories that are horrible, what young women go through, but that's why we, our best bet is due process. Our best bet for both sides. I think right now on the campuses, whatever we have is not working for anybody. So it needs reform, but you cannot have reform without having very high standards for proof and protecting due process. So that's what I'm opposing. And you need good research. And the best research we have, now going back to the first part of your question, says that on campus you're relatively safe compared to women in Anacostia. On campus, living off campus is in, a, in urban neighborhoods is much more dangerous. And yet right now, almost all the focus is about what's happening at, you know, or uh, you know, Oberlin College or something like that, where there's just no evidence of a plague that uh, comparable to a, a Bosnian rape camp, and yet these statistics are top. I don't see how it helps women. I don't see how it helps victims who need good definitions, good methodology, and then smart policies. Last thing uh, about Anacostia, I uh, have not been to a domestic violence center, but I have gone to schools to see how the kids are doing. And overall, um, if you go to urban schools in DC, the girls are doing better than the boys. The girls are more likely to go to college. They're reading about a year and a half to two years ahead. There is a huge gender gap favoring girls among Hispanics, among African Americans, among working class, even among the, in the upper middle class. And that, that's why we have this huge college gap. And it was a fantastic study. And it was exactly what I wanted. It's a, a, a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Third Way. The Third Way. And they bring the, what they think are the best conservative scholars and liberal scholars together to figure out what to do. And they looked at um, poverty, the, the feminization of poverty. They looked at um, violence in, in uh, urban communities. And they found that the breakdown of the family was this it was just creating this vicious cycle because the young men in such families, for some reason in a broken family, the young, the girls see their mom as a hero. She is, she's, she's doing everything and they imitate her. She's their role model. The boys often turn to their guy friends. If they don't have someone playing the role of father, someone they identify with, they will turn to their, to their pals. And that's not a now what happens with these boys, boys who do not get an education beyond high school, uh, almost impossible to get into the middle class now. Education beyond high school was never more important. There was a day where you could get, you could get a college, I mean a high school degree, work hard and make it into the middle class. That doesn't happen now. So there are these young men that are terrible students, they're falling behind, schools make no effort to meet them halfway, they're suspending them at rates that are horrifying. Um, and there's, a, there's, a, a, jet, there's a, a huge suspension gap between blacks and whites, but between boys and girls, it's, it's, a, it's not a gap, it's a, a chasm. And they um, aren't doing anything to, to, to break, help these boys, so they're not getting the education, they don't have the role model at home, and they're, and they're likely to have children but not married. And so it starts over again. They have broken families. So these two groups got together the conservative and liberal scholars to, they, now they didn't do, they haven't come up with a solution. It's not going to be easy. But I can tell you it's the biggest problem we face right now. Broken families, 
um, and they expose women to violence. There's much more violence from a mom's live-in boyfriend uh, than a, a father, like the natural father in the home with the children. It's just, it's just reality, folks. And there's very good data on it. And liberals and conservatives are beginning to work together. It's those two streams. I'd like to see conservative feminists and liberal feminists at the table uh, with their special perspective. I think that's where social progress is. Yes? Um, so what pro-family <coughs> policies do you think would be helpful for uh, mitigating or solving the problems that Chandani faces uh, when she does her domestic violence work? Well, here's where I part, part company with um, conservatives who, some, not, not all conservatives certainly, but sometimes they will just say, oh, <coughs> you have dysfunctional families and they, they, they sort of want to blame people for not staying married or something. Um, I see the problem as the uh, failure to educate young men. And I think that if we, made, if we had a kind of, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a metaphor, like a Marshall Plan to save young men, working class young men from all different races and social groups, uh, and bring them up and, and do what they're doing. And I've suggested this in my latest edition of The War Against Boys. Um, I suggested we model on what they're doing in Germany, and they're doing it in, in Australia, and in, to a certain extent in Great Britain. They have these fantastic schools, and they ask boys, they did a lot of research, like, why do you drop out? Why do you hate school? Because they just don't, why don't you want to be society? I didn't want to be there. I, there nobody wanted me there. And uh, there are a lot of boys where just they feel no one wants them. And they leave, and they, they don't graduate from high school, or they, or they only graduate from high school. They're going to have a tough time. But what if we had high schools that met them halfway, that gave them paths to great jobs, where they could, you know, you get them on a path. We have models. They have a system in, in, in um, California, uh, in Massachusetts. So just to clarify, yeah. to make sure I understand, the best way to go about solving a lot of these domestic violence issues is actually a male-centered platform reform. I'm sorry. Centered, yes. centered on. We're in this no, again. I'm not disagreeing. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, and no people say, "Oh gosh, she's just thinking." No, about I just think it's interesting. That's I'm awesome. thinking about, um, about families. On male, on male education, I, I think that's yeah. actually a, a, a novel idea, one that probably oh, needs okay. to. Okay, I didn't mean no, to. No, I was not. No, even to myself. I to myself, I have to clarify because <coughs> I even um, I heard from. Well, someone I was writing to had been in Uganda and they were building a, a girls' school. And he told, he said, oh, and what about a boys' school? And he said, oh, it's development. In development, it's only girls. Girls' schools, girls' schools. And my friend said, well, shouldn't they educate the boys too? Because people, people assume the boys are getting educated, but they, in this particular town, they were not. And it turns out that young men in a place like Uganda not getting educated are much more likely to be recruited into, uh, you know, these marauding gangs of, uh, you know, sort of uh, pseudo-military uh, people and, and recruited into all sorts of dangerous causes. It just turns out that educating boys, we've learned that educating girls is important. And I'm, I will always be a proponent of that, but here's, the, here's what's the problem. We're in this together. If boys are in trouble, so are we all. If women are in trouble, so are we all. We are in this together. So that, if I have one message tonight, and, and another reason that I push back against some of the more extreme 
uh, claims about toxic masculinity and the implication that men in college are, are dangerous predators. There are some dangerous predators, but most men are not. And I, I fear that we're, not only are we hostile to the little boys in the way they play and who they are, and that there's a kind of antipathy or growing antagonism towards youthful masculinity, but in the colleges, it seems like there's just real hostility. Males and, and, and their humor and their bonding and this war, um, everything they seem to like to do. Uh, I've been following the, the, the battle. Ooh. Children shape toys are us. 
If you go back into the 50s and 60s, there were many more gender-neutral toys. And the toys were, and the society was not gender-neutral. The society was very sexist. It was almost as if men and women really were very different. We're more free and liberated and equal today than ever. And guess what happened? The toys get more defined because the kids want it. So they have ultimate princess culture, which a lot of little girls liked. I would like it. I still not like it. Uh, and, the, and there are uh, boys in the toy stores, what they, and you try to get the kids to merge, and some will, most won't, not without policing them. So I don't think you can have that project without policing and re-engineering human nature. All previous experiments with it have failed. There's no society, in, as I said, in the anthropological record where the males are the nurturers and the females are the rough and tumblers. We've never seen it. And I'm not against trying. I think we have to try to do a lot of things that go against our nature. I think we really, I think it's harder. I, I think that boys do have an advantage in spatial reasoning. Everybody who studies that with male-female differences will know that. But girls have a, a, a distinct advantage in literacy. And, but boys have to read. So I, you know, we have to find creative ways to get people to do what might go against what they want. And so with girls, I do, I'm in favor of a lot of these programs that are strengthening girls in math and science because they've got to be able to do that. That's, there are a lot of great jobs and opportunities. So I'm not saying not to try, but to start out with the idea that we're all just like silly putty. We can be shaped. No. We, we can't, the brain of a child is gendered. Sometimes it's different from, it doesn't match the body. And I want a society that's humane and, and, and understanding and, and allows the freedom to that individual. But then you've got to also allow the majority who kind of want to take a conventional path. Yes? Um, sorry to cut you off. This will be the last question. Um, I have a question about the data that you were citing regarding the dropout rates and the higher um, suspension rates um, versus got, um, males versus females. Um, what is the, the racial breakdown of the children being um, suspended or being or dropping out of schools because I fear you may be making a racial uh, or confusing racial and uh, gender. Well, I, the, the 70% of, according to the Department of Education, 70% of the kids suspended are boys. Yes, but that could also be and that's definitely influenced by the way our society treats Af African American boys because they're African American boys from a young age are three times more likely to be suspended than white males. So if it's I, I think that's why that number is that there's a higher percentage of males being suspended. It's African-American boys, therefore it's a racial issue, and I don't think you should be citing that data as and making it a gender. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> except they found the they go to states like North Dakota or something where they had relatively, communities that had relatively few minority boys, and they some and of the highest being rates. suspended, though. They were still no, minorities. No, it was the white boys who were suspended. In Indiana, for example, they found yeah, outrageously high rates. So it, it was, it's complicated, and I do agree. And I, I talk about it in my book that it's, it's complete intolerance for uh, African Americans. Huh? When was that study from our education study? It comes out every year. You can get out the 2014 one actually decided that the rate of girls being suspended nationally, regardless of race, is actually growing faster, progressing higher than the rate of the rate might be growing because it went from you know 30% to 35% or something like that, but it's it's still a, a distinct minority of children. That's that's a trick that people play when they want to. Not you, but I mean, if 
someone said it to you that way. They always want to deny the problems of boys. The AAUW said, oh, there are more boys in college today than ever before. How can you stay? That's true. There are. There are more boys in college than there were in the 60s or 70s because there was an explosion in, in the numbers of kids who went to college in the 70s and 80s. And the girls, if you look at the trajectory, they just took off. And the boys just it remained, they, they hard, it hardly changed. So that is not progress. So you have to, here's the problem, and maybe the last thing I'll say, is that we've got dozens and dozens of women's groups. And they're doing, many times, a very good job documenting the needs of women. We don't have dozens. We have hundreds. We have thousands. I mean, think of it. All the centers, all the groups, all the women's studies departments, all kind of marching in sisterly solidarity on, you know, rooting for the Team Venus. And Team Mars is apparently running the world. No, not, not a working class boy. Not, not an African-American boy struggling in the classroom. Not Hispanic boys who are significantly behind their sisters. They're not, they're not thriving. And uh, so who's paying attention to that? Where are the groups? They don't exist. So we have this structural asymmetry. Massive network of organizations working for this team women. I don't see us as two teams working, fighting for a single group. I think we are on the same team, team humanity. So maybe I'm more of a humanist than a feminist, but I thought that's what feminism was. I thought feminism was humanism. And that's what we Thank you.